0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Freddie. I am the pastor of young adults here at the Downs Road campus. We're gonna be continuing in Colossians here, starting in uh, chapter three, verse 18, here in a few moments. I went to Bible college at Columbia Bible College here in town. That's why I first came to the US, or came from the US to Canada. And I remember the glorious Bible college days, right? Where you lose friendships during theological arguments, yes? Some of you know, some of you know, if you don't know. Maybe you should go to Bible college and and find out. Uh, And I remember one verse in particular that was really a focal point for a lot of conversations uh, around theological debate. Galatians 3.28, it says this, "'There is neither Jew nor Greek, "'neither slave nor free, neither male or female. "'You are all one in Christ Jesus.'" And there is obviously a a beauty to this passage that when someone becomes a Christian, everything changes. They are now in Christ. The most important thing about them is that they are in Christ. The question is that, is that the only thing about them? And I remember debating people uh, who would argue that every distinction was obliterated under the oneness in Christ. You're a Christian or you're not. And I'm like, amen. And they're like, yeah, so nothing else matters. And I remember struggling with this idea because I was like, well, I'm, like, I'm still a dude. I'm a Christian, but I'm a, I'm a Christian dude. And then as life developed, I'm, now I'm a Christian husband and a Christian dad. It is there significance? Obviously, it's not an identity, but is there significance to our relationships, to our social context? I couldn't help but think that there was. The passage that we're looking at today Colossians chapter three, verse 18 to chapter four, verse one, gives us what theologians call household codes and teaches us how to be Christians in our unique social settings. These eight verses help us understand the basics of Christian life in the social relationships we find ourselves in. My big idea for today is that well-ordered homes make a wonderful witness. Well-ordered homes make a wonderful witness. So, We're going to read the passage. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on literary context, just kind of framing the conversation. And then there are three lessons about the Christian family that we're going to jump into. So first, Colossians 3, 18 to 4.1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We're obviously in the middle of something, so I'll back up the bus a little bit and give some of the literary context. So, this is now our third sermon in chapter three of Colossians. And the, the chapter or the passages that come just before it are all about Christian ethics. When we switch into chapter three, it is how do Christians live? What is the morality of Christian life? And if you remember, uh, Ezra would have preached on there are things that you kill. And that's the language of the passage and in the beginning of chapter three, put to death, therefore, the things that are earthly in you. And then you get into this list of things, put to death, sexual immorality, verse five, impurity, verse five, anger, verse eight, lying, verse nine. There are things that Christians must let go. There are things that Christians, when you become a Christian, when you find yourself by faith, united to Christ, there are things you leave behind. But Christianity is not a negative religion. There are things you leave behind, there are no's, but there are also yes's, there are things that you start doing. And the language of of Colossians chapter three is you you put it on, and Ezra talked about this, Andrew talked about this, you put on the jersey. You're a new new family, You're, you're part of a new team. And you put on compassion, kindness, forgiveness, love, peace, thankfulness. So most of Colossians three is general ethics on how to be a Christian. What changes about your character, about your behavior, about your actions? But at verse 18, we move from the general to the specific. And then 18 all the way to 4 1 are specific household relationships. And we have to ask the question, right? Like, why are these even in the Bible? Like, some of it seems self explanatory, some of it seems somewhat offensive, but like we can learn this like, from sociology. Like, you, you can learn this in school, someone could read, write a book about it. You don't need the Bible to teach you how to organize a home. But if Christian life affects everything, then we actually do care what the Lord has to say about this. And there, I think there are two reasons that the house rules are in the Bible. The first is fundamentally Christian life means obedience to Jesus. That's what being a Christian is. I go this way because the Lord commanded me. And I used to go this way, but something changed. Right? We, we make a big deal at this church about the Great Commission, and I'm, frankly, every church should make a big deal of it. Jesus commands us to go unto all the nations and make disciples. And we spend a lot of time in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. That's where that phrase comes from. But verse 18 is also, also significant. Jesus gives the Great Commission because he has all authority. Verse 18 says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus says, I'm king of the universe. And because I'm king of the universe, you need to go and tell people that there is a king who is coming back. Join his team. So if Jesus is Lord of everything, in language of Colossians, if we have been set free from the domain of darkness and enter into the kingdom of his beloved son, then Christian life is obedience to Jesus, living according to the rules of the king. So it would make sense that the household code would be in the Bible. But secondly, I think there is a missional impact to a passage like this. You don't necessarily see it in our passage, but if you kind of zoom out a little bit, it starts to be more clear. So at the very beginning of chapter three, the very first phrase is to set your mind on things that are above. So Christian life begins with thinking in a totally different way. And then when we switch into chapter four, it turns into an exhortation to pray, and not pray in general, but pray specifically that a door would be opened for the sharing of the gospel. And then it transitions into teaching us how we should speak to people, have our speech seasoned with salt. So you start with thinking the way that God would have you think, and then praying for a door to be opened. And the argument that I'm trying to make is like what I said in my big idea, that a well-ordered home, a Christian home, is a wonderful witness in a world that longs to see peace inside homes. And there are three spheres of relationships described. You have the marriage sphere, you have the the familial sphere, and then you have the workplace, right? So husbands and wives, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. So there are obviously specific commands. Wives submit, husbands love, uh, and do not uh, not be harsh. Children obey, fathers do not provoke. Slaves obey, masters treat justly. So obviously each one of those could be its own sermon. So we're gonna kind of go through them And then my hope is to show you three lessons that we can draw from this passage that describes how we should organize the home. So lesson one is priority in the Christian family. So Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord and husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A family unit begins, according to the Bible, when a man joins to a woman in marriage. This is a unique idea. This is a Christian idea. It comes to us all the way from Genesis 2, the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis two twenty four says this, a man shall leave his father. So a man who's part of a family unit leaves his family behind, leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And then Jesus picks up on this passage thousands of years later, Matthew 19. So they are no longer two, but one. And what is this oneness? This oneness means what God has joined together Let no man separate. In the scriptures, marriage is described as the foundational social relationship of society. Marriage starts a new family unit and then a conglomeration of family units makes a tribe or or makes a town and then towns make cities and cities make states or provinces and they make countries and so forth and so forth. So the foundational relationship socially is a marriage. This is a unique idea. I I wanna show you that Greco-Roman culture was not silent on how the home should be organized, and they organized things very differently. So Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, this is what he says. He wrote, a, he wrote an essay, it's out of politics, and he says this. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of masters over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father and the third of the husband. So we agree on the categories. There's marriage, there's family, so marriage plus children, family, and then workplace. A husband and father, we saw, rule over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, over his wife, a constitutional rule. It's old speech, but the argument Aristotle is making is free men are superior to everyone else. They're superior to women, They're superior to children and they're superior to slaves. So free men are the pinnacle of human society. And this was actually enshrined in Roman law. They had a concept called the paterfamilias where the oldest free male in a home had tremendous legal authority over every single person in his home. Uh, They had the power to declare who they would inherit and who they would disinherit. They had the power to abandon a child legally. So they they could just say, I I don't want you in my family anymore. And you were gone, you were disinherited, you were nothing. So Roman law protected the right of the oldest free male. So Aristotle totally agrees with that cultural principle. But then I want you to see the way that the, the passages or, or the way that the quote organizes the priority of, of relationships. First the slave, then the father, last the husband. So the workplace is the most important thing, because you gotta be about that paper. Then the second most important relationship is your children because you need an heir to pass on all your stuff. And then the third most important relationship is your wife because you need someone to give you an heir that you could give all your stuff to. That's the way that Greco-Roman world saw family relationships. Everything was ordered around protecting your stuff, protecting your honor, protecting your name. So when the scriptures include a house code, there are things that we have to see in it that are profoundly different. Ours begins by talking about marriage. The Bible challenges and affirms the cultural views of the day. The Bible clearly rejects the idea of gender inequality. There is no natural superiority in males over females or parents over children. They're all humans made in the image of God, have the same worth. Uh, we see this in Colossians three ten and 11. We have put on, Christians, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, so not out there, in the world, we know how it works. But here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This passage says kind of the same thing that Galatians three says, that the most important relationship is the one you have to Christ. That if you are in Christ, that is the fundamental identity piece. And that makes all people who are in Christ of the same value. This was a radical idea in a world that totally disagreed with this concept. Our passage limits the authority of the oldest female, of the paterfamilias in the home rather than social standing or developing an air being what guided the, the behavior of this person, our passage says, love is the guiding principle. Love your wife, verse 19. And it's being specific because everyone, every person is told to love, right? Verse 14 before says, bind everything together in love. So every Christian is supposed to love, but on top of a general Christian love, Husbands in particular are commanded to love. And even more than that, the passage goes beyond just saying, love your wife. It says, do not be harsh with her. So the passage contradicts the cultural views of the day, but more than that, the passage also affirms some of the views of the day. The passage affirms the idea that there are authority structures in the home This is a very unpopular notion in today's world. We wanna believe that the world is flat all the time. Everyone's the same all the time. No one has more authority than anyone else. But that's actually not how real life works, right? Let me give you a simple example. Uh, I run a soccer team. I've talked about it before, I love playing soccer. I run a co-ed soccer team and I am the GM, coach, equipment manager, water boy, uh, graphics dude, everything, right? And part of my role in managing this team is that I set our lineup for each game and then I I handle substitution. So I'm like, you're on for this person, you're on for that person, okay, you're on. You can double shift, this person comes on after. right? I'm directing the team, that's part of my role as the coach. And no player on the team is of more value than anyone else. I play on the team as well. So I'm of the same value. I wear the same jersey, I pay the same fee, I play basically the same as everyone else. right? But we understand that Freddie's role is to be the coach and their role is to be the player. We work together as a team. We're all worth the same, but we do different things. Our passage is working with that understanding of of authority, that people are worth the same. The husband and the wife are worth the same, which is a radical idea in their world. So they're worth the same, but they do different things. So let's talk about the different things they do. I know the moment you're all waiting for, trying to decide if we should stone this man or not. Please don't. Stone Mark instead. Verse 18, wives... Submit to your husband, right? It's in there. What does it mean? I define submission as a willing deferral to the leadership of another. The willing deferral of leadership to another. So returning to the image of the soccer team, our team works because every player on that team has said, I will defer to Freddie. They might not agree with me on the people I I play in certain positions. They might not agree with me on playing time, but they're saying, I'm willing to submit to the leadership of Freddie in the context of this soccer game. As soon as the soccer game is over, they often give me feedback, not always positive, right? In regular life, they give me all kinds of feedback, but when we're playing soccer, they're a player, I'm a coach. We have a very clear authority structure. Our passage is working with that same idea, that in the home, that a husband and a wife, the way that they relate together is that a wife voluntarily submits and submits, which means that she defers to the leadership of her husband. She's willing to play ball. She's willing to follow his lead, right? And, And submission needs to be defined in the negative too. By submission, I do not mean that all women somehow must submit to all men. That's not what the passage says. It says wives submit to your husband. The passage is saying each wife submits to her one husband. In in your family, this is where that happens. Not in the world, just in the home. And then it moves on, right? So we want more. We would want so much more. Like, please describe for me what you mean, Paul. But he moves on. Husbands, love your wife. And the husbands actually get two commands. Positive, love your wife. Negative, do not be harsh with them. Love, I will define as sacrificial leadership for the good of another. So love is a verb. Love is serving someone. I borrowed this definition from how Jesus describes himself in Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? So love is an act of service for the good of other people. So for a husband, this would mean proactively meeting the needs of your wife, like endeavoring to get after it, not before you're asked, not after you're asked, planning support and rest within your home, right? But I think love isn't necessarily the challenge in this passage. None of us would see that and think, ah, I don't want to do that. We're like, sure, of course. I'm, I'm pro-love. I, I want to love my wife. Amen. I think the negative command is, is the one that's a little bit more challenging. Do not be harsh. The word for do not be harsh means do not embitter. Right? So, you know, picture that you have a, a drink of something like with a little bit too much lemon and the face that you make, you're like, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. Right? Imagine that as a disposition for your entire life. The person that you live with just makes you, ooh, not interested. Ah, they're just a pain to be around, right? They bother me. They're harsh, right? If we were gonna turn that into a positive command, we would say something along the lines of, be gentle or or, or be tender. So I think this passage teaches husbands love. And when I say love, I mean serve, and not just serve generally, but serve in a tender way. I find this tremendously challenging. If you are a husband in this room, you should find this tremendously challenging. Uh, this is a Mennonite Brethren Church. We have a lot of people from ethnically, from Ukraine, Paraguay, like kind of those Northern European places where no one shows emotion unless their hockey team is playing, right? So I'm just saying it's true, right? Uh, I have a lot of stoic Mennonite friends who I see as dads, and I see them be tremendously tender, I'm talking trades dudes that, you know, will let their daughters paint their toes, trades dudes that will cuddle and have tea with a little girl. But then when you see them talk to their wife, they're like, I don't have time for a date. When they actually maybe are going on a date, they're like, I I wore work boots all day. I'm wearing flip-flops. And you're like, you're going to the keg, man. Like maybe you wear shoes that are closed up. No, I'm wearing flip-flops. We see men who love their wives, love their wives by coming home every night. But if if we want to take the Bible seriously, that we love our wives and we're not harsh with them and we're gentle with them, we're tender with them, we're affectionate with them, it would mean that being part of a husband is that we are tender to our wife. We can't do less for our wife than we do for our kids. I think this is a hard word for dads, hard word for husbands. And it raises the question, right? What human relationship is most important to you? Obviously, your relational context makes a big difference in how you answer this. If you're not married, I would hope you would say something like a a close friend or, or a parent. And in that relationship, you will practice all the skills that if you get married will make you an effective spouse. Communication, conflict management, prioritization. But if you are married, the correct answer is your spouse. Not your kids, not your friends, not the buddies you golf with. The correct answer is If you're a man, my wife, or if you're a woman, my husband, is the most important relationship. We live in a world that is profoundly disordered. We look at the Greco-Roman example where it's slaves, then children, then wives, and we say, ew, gross. I can't believe that they were so patriarchal and backwards. And our enlightened age prioritizes children, workplace, marriage. We're not that much better. And the Bible makes it clear that marriage is the most important human relationship if you are married. So I wanna challenge you. If you are married, and this applies both to the husband and to the wife, but in the passage, particularly to the husband, if you are a married man, I wanna challenge you tonight to fight to make time daily and weekly for connecting with your wife in our own home we use a little, uh, a little book called The Marriage Journal. Uh, and in it, we just talk about our week. So it has a little calendar. There's a short devotional. And then we have a, there's questions that just foster conversation on how life is going. And then bigger questions like money, sex, family. And it just creates this opportunity where once a week, my wife and I talk, which we have to do because if we don't, the tyranny of the urgent takes over. And I can talk to tiny people and church people the entire week and not talk to my wife once. If you are a married man, fight to make time to prioritize your relationship. Lesson number two, you guys are gonna have to listen a little bit faster. Authority in the Christian family, Colossians three twenty to 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So here, I'm gonna put my foot in my mouth. After I just said everyone is equal, not everyone is equal. Parents are considered, according to this passage, to be in a higher authority structure than children. So they're equal in worth. I wasn't kidding, everyone's equal, but they play different roles. The same way that a husband and wife play different roles, kids play a different role. Kids are tier two. Kids obey their parents, right? That's the language of the passage. A wife and a husband, their commands to each other are voluntary. A husband voluntarily loves, and voluntary is not harsh. A wife voluntarily submits, children obey in the Lord. Right, it's way more direct, it's way more one-sided. So parents, by God's design, have a God-given authority over their children in the home. And the passage says, obey in all things. So parents' duty, parents' authority extends to teaching their kids everything for life. We're talking not just knowledge, but wisdom, how to use that knowledge, and worldview, how to view yourself, how do you view the universe. So there are two ways that people mess this up. People overdo it on authority, People underdo it on authority, right? Both are ditches, both are terrible. So for those that overdo it, right? The passage warns people who might be tempted to overdo it. It it says, you know, parents, fathers, do not provoke your children, verse 21. And there are obvious things like that we would consider provocation, right? So uh, yelling, beating, belittling, like I understand why someone would clap back. Like that, that is provocation. But there's kind of like a second tier that's a little bit more light, that we would, you know, if someone asked us, we would say for sure bad, but we all kind of do. So like the the sarcasm, um, the the teasing, impatience, those kinds of things. And we read this passage and we have to come to the conclusion that uh, this passage applies to me. I, I am that kind of parent, I do provoke. So the passage commands me, do not provoke. And I think provocation is a broad enough term that it doesn't just include like bad treatment it also includes overregulation. So parents faces perennial temptation to stick the little fingers in every aspect of their child's life in an attempt to determine the outcomes of their life. We see these little people that we love, that we would do anything for, and we think to ourselves, if I can just meddle enough to make sure they have the right friends and the right classes and the right ideas, they'll end up in the right place. And parents will overdo it on their authority The result, comes to us in verse 21, is that you will have discouraged children. Little people break under excessive rules and excessive discipline. I remember watching Encanto, shout out to Spanish speaking movies, come on. Uh, Great soundtrack, highly recommend. Uh, There's this scene at the end of the movie where Mirabel, they're like the main character, has a confrontation with abuela, which means grandma, right? They have a confrontation, and Mirabel looks at grandma and says, I, I will never be enough for you. Because all grandma cared about was the miracles, like the special powers that each grandkid had, but Mirabel didn't have one, so a little bit of a spoiler, but that's the movie. And Mirabel tells her, I, I will never be enough for you, and then runs away. I'm watching this movie with my wife, and I start bawling. Uh, It was a bizarre experience. I'm not really sure what happened to this day. I think I might have blacked out, Uh, but I'm just there. (laughs) And it's like, they're falling. And you have to imagine the scene, right? We're just watching a movie. It's a random Saturday night. Uh, I'm just laying on the couch like men do, like a vegetable. And my wife hears me (laughs) and looks over and then is like, pause. And she's like, what is up? And I'm like... (laughs) And then it, after about 10 minutes, which made everyone uncomfortable, my wife is normally pretty empathetic, but I think she was just shocked. Where she's like, a kid's movie did this to you? My word. Uh, and in that moment, once I cleared up, I, I told her, I, Rebecca, that's my greatest fear. My greatest fear is that our boys would feel like they were never good enough for their dad. They would know what I'd do for a living They would know the way that I am. It's kind of overbearing a little bit out there. And they would feel, dad is never impressed with me. I don't think that is unique to me. And I think even with that fear, I think there are so many Christian parents that struggle in overusing their authority in their home. I think many of us experienced overuse of authority in the home and reacted by going to the other side where we fall into the other ditch where there's no authority in the home. And our passage doesn't really warn against that because you have to understand the context. The Greco-Roman world had an idea called the paterfamilia. There was a man in a home, in each home, who could disinherit and kill, or cast off to be killed, any person in the home. They didn't struggle with using authority. They struggled with using too much. But God's word written by the Lord gives us wisdom for all of life and warns us about the opposite ditch. Proverbs nineteen eighteen says this, discipline your son for there's hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. The same challenge comes from the other side. We can crush kids. We can discourage them by doing too much and we can lead them to their ruin by not doing enough. Right? Children don't understand that, if, uh, that sometimes their decisions Lead them tremendously dark places. Kids with no rules make poor decisions. Kids with no discipline never learn that there are consequences to their actions until it becomes a very painful public experience. Our passage warns us about the misuse of authority. So the lesson for us in this text is to rightly use authority in the discipline and instruction of your kids. And if I was just gonna put it in phrases for you, I would say, parents, you need to say yes. And parents, you need to say no. So by that, I mean, we need to say yes to good values. Every parent, every set of parents needs to decide what are some values that we wanna pass on to our children. I'll give you one from from our home. Uh, We we value resiliency. That's something my dad taught me. That's something Rebecca's dad taught her. And we're thinking, you know what? We wanna pass it on to our boy. Isaiah, uh, one of the things that we do with him, he's the older one, he can talk a little bit, is when he gets hurt, we have this little saying that we do. So he comes, imagine with me, he's riding a strutter bike, he biffs, he's got a little bruise on himself, you know, bleeding a little bit. He comes crying. (laughs) Comes up to you. (laughs) Up, up. And I say, before I pick him up, I'm going to comfort him. I'm a good dad. But I say, Isaiah, how tough are you? And he looks at me and I say, so tough, so tough and he has to say, so tough, back. If he doesn't say it, then I say it for him. I say, say, Isaiah, so tough. And I pick him up, love him. Uh, Sometimes he's not feeling it, and you'll say, not tough, (laughs) not tough. (laughs) But, But he understands what's happening in that moment. Like, affection is not conditional in our home. If he comes for a hug, he's getting a hug. But I'm trying to teach him, Rebecca's trying to teach him that when we get hit in life, when we experience suffering, you get back up. That's life. There's going to be way worse things than a skin knee on a Strider bike. And I want to teach my little boy how, how to get back up. How tough are you? So tough. And then give him the biggest hug in the world. We want to pass on some of these values. When our boys do the right things, we gas them up, right? Every time, it doesn't matter what it is. If he crossed the road by holding his, and held his mom's hand, uh, he won the Olympics in my eyes. Right, we want to say yes. If you're a mom and dad here, what are you known for saying yes to in the home? What would your like, kids say? What would your siblings say? What would your friends say? If you can't answer that question, you couldn't say faith, hard work, service, patience. I... You should sit down with your spouse and you should plan out three to five things. Like In our household, we say yes to this. We encourage it, we affirm it, we teach it every opportunity we get. And when it happens, we praise them like there's no tomorrow because we want to teach that to our kids. We want to use our God-given authority to train our little ones. And the same is true on the opposite side. What are the things you say no to? In, in our household, uh, I have a nasty habit of speaking very fast. You probably haven't noticed. Uh, and, and one of the ways that presents itself in our home is that because I speak so fast and because Isaiah's only two, uh, sometimes he struggles to say things and he's kind of just kind of mumbles. And Rebecca will ask him, Isaiah, would you like a peach? And Rebecca's like, yes, please. No, thank you, Mommy. And in that moment, we're not being pedantic. We're trying to teach him, Isaiah, mumbling, poor communication will destroy every human relationship you have. To this day, that is my biggest frustration in every human relationship. I don't always make myself clear, which is terribly ironic because I speak for a living, Uh, but it's a struggle for everyone. It's a struggle for everyone. We struggle to communicate. And I wanna teach our little boy that communication requires you to speak clearly. You look someone in the face and you say, yes, please. No thank you. And then on with the peach or no thank you. We want to teach our kids thing or we want to prune things out of our kids. This is not like a uniquely Christian idea. Uh, Jordan Peterson, right? Well-known guy, uh, he talks about the, the role of parenting. And from his perspective, the role of parenting is singular. You socialize your kid so they are agreeable by age four. And the way he defines that is he said, you need to teach your kids enough social skills that other kids will play with them and adults will be nice to them by the time they're four. Otherwise, kids will not play with them and every adult will like be fake around them because they'll pretend to like them even though they don't. And he said, it is terribly destructive to the psyche of a little one uh, to recognize that every single person in their life either doesn't like them or pretends to like them. And those kids grow up with no confidence, no ambition, no dreams, and it leads to terrible outcomes for them. You're like, whoa, dude, relax with the pressure. But he, he's trying to get after the same thing that the scriptures are getting after. And he, he maybe overdoes it a touch, but we would agree with him in that parents need to rightly use their discipline to prune things out of their kids. Kids need to be taught in everything. They obey in everything because they're taught in everything. So what attitudes or behaviors, if you're a parent, what attitudes or behaviors are off limits in your home? Whining, yelling, lying, hitting, there has to be something. If you can't answer that instantly, if your kids don't know that, take some time, sit with your spouse, write three to five things down. You, as parents, rightly use your authority to teach and discipline your kids by saying yes and by saying no. Lastly, lesson three, transformation in the Christian family. Colossians three twenty-two to 4, 1. knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, of course, we, we see the word bondservant or slave. And that obviously is our first question. Like, what on earth? Why is this in the Bible? It's bad enough that there's these house codes that tell us how to live. But now more than that, apparently it's condoning slavery. Well, we gotta back up a little bit. And you have to understand the Bible was not written to us. It was written in a different place. And in their world, slavery meant a totally different thing. Slaves functioned in every aspect of life, from working in mines to raising kids and running businesses. And slavery was so common in the Greco-Roman world that in a city like Colossae, about a third of the people there, a third of their population would be slaves. And if you look at a place, right, and roughly a third are kids, like people under 18, and everyone else, two thirds would be adults. If one third is slaves, basically half of your adult population is a slave in a a Roman town in, in their day and age. When we hear slave, we think African slave trade. We think Chateau slavery, right? Antebellum South. We think race-based, violent subjugation of people made in the image of God. And, and we say that is wrong. Amen, it is wrong. But when we look at their world, slavery was more akin to what we would call an internship today. Uh, an internship, of course, is you work for someone for a set period of time. They provide for all your needs and you provide labor. Right I was an intern here, many moons ago, uh, and I remember, back in 2016, I worked here. I had a small salary, I had a ministry budget so I could go out with people and buy books, and I worked a lot. a lot, a lot. The people who worked me were terrible. <laughs> they weren't. They're, they're fine. They're, they're all gone now, though, so we're good. <laughs> My point is, when we see bond servant or slave, depending on your translation, we should think intern, employee. That's, that's how they would have understood it in the original context. So the question for us in this passage is, what kind of employee or employer should we be? What does the Bible teach us about the workplace? And I'll go quick. There's just two short commands. Work hard with sincerity, verse 23, because you're working for the Lord. And then verse 22, don't, don't be a people pleaser, right? It's not about eye service. It's not about people pleasing. Uh, we all face this temptation, yeah? Yeah. We face the temptation to look or act a certain way, right? When we know people are looking. Uh, There's this concept in in boxing called stealing a round. So if you don't know anything about boxing, boxing matches are 12 rounds, three minutes per round. And at the end of three minutes, there are three judges that each give a score for that round. And there was a a young man named Sugar Ray Leonard a couple years ago, or many years ago, who uh, his strategy was what he called win the last 30 seconds. If I can throw a few extra punches, if I can look like the aggressive boxer and steal the round, I was passive for two and a half minutes, but in the end, I'm just throwing extra punches, throwing extra punches, moving and grooving, the judges will give me an extra point. I'll win the round. You do that enough, you win enough rounds, you win the match. This idea is not unique to boxing. All of us work a little harder when the boss man's around. All of us work a little harder if your spouse is looking. Right? All of us face the temptation, to be and act like more than we actually are. So this passage teaches us how to function in the workplace. But if we zoom out a little bit and just look at the household code together as a whole, what does it teach us? I think it teaches us a handful of things. First, it teaches about the dignity of all people. It is kind of ironic that in a passage that talks about slavery, we actually learn about the dignity of humanity. Because even in this passage where no one in their world would have addressed a slave, the Bible does. People who are slaves by vocation are still viewed as volitional beings who can have a living and active relationship with the Lord. The same way that a child, the same way that a man, the same way that a woman can. This would have been wild to them. All people are given dignity and the ability to act like a Christian in their unique social setting. And more than that, probably the most important thing we can learn from this passage is though hierarchy continues to exist, we see it in the home, in husbands leading wives, parents leading children, all hierarchy, all human hierarchy is secondary to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Chapter four, verse one ends with that idea that we all have one master. Masters act the right way because we all have one master. The ascended Jesus is king of the universe. And in verse 25, we're reminded, he will show no partiality when he returns. Every person, regardless of their social relationships, will stand before the Lord and will have to give an account. Did I turn to you? Did I obey you in my, was I acting like a Christian? In Colossians 3, 1 to 17. Did I act like a Christian in my social relationships? Three eighteen to 4, 1. Every single person will stand before the Lord and give an account. Our third lesson is that transformation begins in the home because Christians continue to be households. We continue to be spouses, children, employees. And in the midst of that, we have the opportunity to make a profound witness in our world. I wanna give you an example. Uh, Not this week, but the week before, I was serving at the AIA soccer camp and I was serving alongside Sean Hildebrand. He came through the Immerse program. He served in various roles here. A, a, A wonderful man of God. And as we served together, I noticed that there was a bunch of kids that came from his soccer team. And during the breaks and lunchtime, it would be Sean and then a bunch of little kids around him that all played soccer for him. And I asked him about it, and he said, well, I invited these boys personally. They played on my club team. I'm a coach at Abbotsford United. These boys play on my squad. So I invited him, and 10 of them came. These 10 boys came because they got to know Sean, If you've met Sean, you know that his voice is kind of like this. He says, good coaching, kids. Yep, play defense. Yes, share the ball. Encourage each other always in the Lord, right? That's kind of how he talks. (laughs) He's a good guy. I love him to death. Uh, And as he's coaching, these kids got to see all of Sean in various social settings. Uh, Sean was a single man when he started coaching and then he met his wife and got married. So they knew Sean as a man. They knew Sean as a husband. And this past year, they welcomed a little one into their home. So they see Sean as a dad. So they have seen Sean in various roles. And what they have seen is that Sean is a man of peace. Sean is a man whose household functions well. And when a guy they like, Sean, invites them to a thing they enjoy, soccer, they show up. And at AIA soccer camp, they hear the gospel presented. Ten kids from various backgrounds, none of whom have Christian faith. So a well-ordered Christian home is and can be and should be a wonderful witness in a world where no one cares what Christians think. But they will be drawn to the harmony in your home. Our passage, the reason it's in the Bible, is to teach us that Christian life affects everything about us it affects all of our social relationships. And if we do things God's way, not the culture's way, it God's way, if we're willing to arrange our homes in such a way that honors God's word in Colossians three eighteen to 4, 1, we will live well-ordered homes that make a wonderful witness in a world that is desperate for a good example, desperate for peace, desperate for hope. Christian homes, well-ordered homes, make a wonderful witness. I'm gonna pray for you. And then I'll invite the worship team back up and we're gonna continue in communion. Father God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this evening and the opportunity to be together and sing songs and worship you through song, through prayer, through the word. Father, I recognize that this passage is one of those in scripture that is profoundly challenging. So Lord, I pray for soft hearts. For everyone here, Father, I pray that they would take something away from today a challenge about parenting, a challenge about marriage, a challenge about the workplace. Uh, And and they would want to be Christians in every aspect of their lives, in every relationship in their lives. Father, uh, we all struggle. It is easy to dodge things. It is easy to fall short. But by your spirit, Father, you give us more grace. So Lord, I pray, no matter how much we've messed it up, give us another chance. Help us live obedient lives. Father, as we turn to communion, uh, remind us yet again of your mercy. And we ask this in Jesus mighty name. Amen.